0: Listening to the Warrior Priest Podcast. And this is the Warrior Priest Podcast, episode number 87. And I am the Warrior Priest, Donovan Riley. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Thank you so very much for taking the time to listen to the podcast today. Welcome to new listeners. Thank you for tuning in, and thank you to everybody who supports the podcast, especially my financial supporters who buy me a cup of coffee every month and support my ongoing work for the show, collecting resources, building up the show, improving it uh, in any way that I can. Thank you. Thank you very much for believing in me and the show. Thank you for all of your encouragement, for sharing the podcast, for posting quotes from the podcast online, for tagging me on Instagram. Thank you. I really appreciate it. It's gratifying, I guess, to know that not only are there people that listen to the podcast, but appreciate the content and appreciate what i have to put out there into the world so thank you that being said then we are back in chuck Palahniuk's book fight club jumping ahead this week to chapter 12 on page 95 this is the scene in the movie where the narrator's boss confronts him not just about his behavior around the office but his appearance as well so without any further ado let's jump in my boss stands too close to my desk with his little smile, his lips together and stretched thin, his crotch at my elbow. I look up from writing the cover letter for a recall campaign. These letters always begin the same way. Quote, This notice is sent to you in accordance with the requirements of the National Motor Vehicle Safety Act. We have determined that a defect exists. This week I ran the liability formula. And for once, A times B times C equaled more than the cost of a recall. This week, it is the little plastic clip that holds the rubber blade on your windshield wipers. A throwaway item. Only 200 vehicles affected. Next to nothing for the labor cost. Last week was more typical. Last week, the issue was some leather cured with a known teratogenic substance, synthetic niret, or something just as illegal that's still used in third-world tanning. Something so strong that it could cause birth defects in the fetus of any pregnant woman who comes across it. Last week, nobody called the Department of Transportation. Nobody initiated a recall. New leather multiplied by labor cost multiplied by administration cost would equal more than our first-quarter profits. If anyone ever discovers our mistake we can still pay off a lot of grieving families before we come close to the cost of retrofitting 6,500 leather interiors. But this week, we are doing a recall campaign. And this week, the insomnia is back. Insomnia. And now the whole world figures to stop by and take a dump on my grave. One of the things that I've learned over the years is that large companies like the car industry, also the airline industry, which I'm more familiar with because I've had friends who have worked in engineering and mechanics within the airline industry for different airline companies. What I've learned from them firsthand is that these companies weigh the cost of replacing a part with the cost of paying out for damages done to the consumer. So like he talks about in relation to cars, there are accountants, And their job is to add up the cost of a recall on a a plastic clip, a piece of of metal wiring, a nut in the vehicle that could lead to catastrophic uh, damage, failure of the machinery, the equipment. But the accountant's job is not to stop there, but then to add in what is the cost of paying out in a lawsuit, a class action lawsuit for damages versus the cost of replacing that clip that wire that nut as i said probably what is more terrifying than that even is that as i said friends of mine in the airline industry who work in engineering and mechanics they face the same struggle if there is a nut that keeps stripping in a plane engine in a 747 engine and they send it to the engineers and say this this nut is is faulty it's it's no good it strips constantly and It's a dangerous piece of equipment. The engineers then design a better nut. But then when they're done drawing up the plans for the nut, they have to send it to the accountants. And the accountant's job, just like in the auto industry, is to add up the cost of manufacturing a brand new nut for that part on the 747 engine versus the cost of if that engine fails. So I know every time that I used to fly That there are a lot of things on an airplane that are done on the cheap. And if more people knew that, I don't know if that would change people's attitude towards flying, because considering people's willful ignorance towards the lack of data and science backing up things like masks and lockdowns and social distancing and vaccinations, they still go forward with that. So, therefore, and they would go forward with that so that they can fly and they can travel to see relatives or go on vacation. So knowing that about people, I don't really think that if the airline industry or the auto industry or the pharmaceutical industry, for example, opened to their books and showed people, yeah, we actually weigh the cost of a class action lawsuit, the cost of your life or the life of your loved ones versus how much it would cost us to replace that piece of our product. And more often than not, it's just easier. It's cheaper for us to pay out to the customer for damages, for death. I don't know if people would be that affected by it, not like they used to be. In the 70s and 80s, class action lawsuits against the tobacco industry, the pharmaceutical industry, the nuclear regulatory industry, and on and on, seem to have reached its peak with justice advocates and activists. Nowadays, it seems that people just accept the fact that China and India are the number one and two polluters of the world. Especially in regards to carbon emissions. But no one seems to care so long as their iPhone costs $500 and their new Nikes are $150. Which, by the way, just as a side note, since it's in the news, a Chinese worker at a Nike factory gets $8 a week. $8 a week to make shoes for professional athletes like LeBron James, who is paid $32.8 million a year by Nike to endorse their shoes. So when someone starts talking about systemic oppression, especially someone who's paid $32 million a year by a shoe company that oppresses their own workers and uses slave labor, women, children, men, old and young, they don't have a foot to stand on. They don't get to take the moral high ground. If you're paid $32 million a year to endorse a product that you know is made by people who are enslaved and oppressed, you're not a good person. You don't get to take the moral high ground. You don't know the first thing about oppression because you actually support and endorse systemic oppression in other countries. And that's not just LeBron James. He's in the news and I was thinking about it, especially in relation to this topic. But any celebrity that endorses Nike, The Gap, Banana Republic, Victoria's Secret, Adidas, iPhone, it doesn't matter. All of those products are made in China and India using slave labor, or people that are paid 7 to $8 a week. And then the people that step in front of the camera and tell us, lecture us, about the morality or immorality of climate change, vaccinations, systemic oppression and racism, bigotry and xenophobia, these people are making tens of millions of dollars at the expense of other human beings. And they don't seem that concerned about them. So we have to be very careful and we have to tune our antenna. We have to tune our bullshit filter to catch what is really happening behind these facades, these mouthpieces who are celebrities, professional athletes, politicians, and so on. These people are not genuine. They're paid actors. They don't actually care about people. They don't care about you or me because they don't care about the people who are being slaved so that they can make tens of millions of dollars endorsing these products or speaking on behalf of big pharmaceutical companies or whoever it might be. We have to strip away, in my opinion, we have to strip away this facade. We have to strip away the false reality that's being presented to us via our TVs and our um, electronic devices. We have to strip all of that away and see these people for who they really are. They're empty vessels. They're empty suits. They're mouthpieces for these industries, these multi-billion trillion dollar industries. They say what they're told to say and they do what they're told to do. They're puppets. They're slaves themselves, but they're willing slaves. And I don't know if you can say the, thing, the same thing about the children in India and China who are forced to make the iPhones and the Nikes and the lingerie for these people. So that being said, rant over, back to the text. What ends up happening then is that he recognizes, the narrator recognizes the evil That is this whole scheme, this whole system of weighing the profits and the losses versus a class action lawsuit for damages to one of their consumers, one of their customers versus the cost of replacing a part. And what ends up happening, of course, like I said, in the case of a nut on an engine for a 747 is that the accountants look at that nut and they look at and say, yes, it's a faulty nut. It's a flawed nut. Um, construction, but it's going to cost us more to replace that nut in every engine and every 747 in our fleet than if an airplane goes down and we have to pay out for the death of one, two, 300 people. This is how these companies think. I've seen behind the curtain firsthand. It's a reality. So when he talks about this clip on the windshield wiper and how if that clip breaks because it's faulty, And then your windshield wipers don't work correctly and you're driving through the rain or the hail or the sleet and you can't see the highway and you crash or have an accident. They don't care because it costs them more to replace that little 22 cent plastic clip than it does to go to court and just pay a couple million of dollars to the person who was killed in the accident. They don't care about you. They're only about the profit. They only care about their bottom line. That's it. So then he goes back and says, my boss is wearing his gray tie. So today must be Tuesday. My boss brings a sheet of paper to my desk and asks if I'm looking for something. This paper was left in the copy machine, he says, and begins to read, quote, the first rule of Fight Club is you do not talk about Fight Club, end quote. His eyes go side to side across the paper and he giggles. The second rule of Fight Club is you don't talk about Fight Club. I hear Tyler's words come out of my boss. Mr. Boss with his midlife spread and family photo on his desk and his dreams about early retirement and winters spent at a trailer park hookup in some Arizona desert. My boss with his extra starched shirts and standing appointment for a haircut every Tuesday after lunch. He looks at me and he says, I hope this isn't yours. I am Joe's blood boiling rage. Tyler asked me to type up the fight club rules and make him 10 copies, not nine not 11. Tyler says 10. Still, I have the insomnia and can't remember sleeping since three nights ago. This must be the original I typed. I made 10 copies and forgot the original. The paparazzi flash of the copy machine in my face, the insomnia distance of everything, a copy of a copy of a copy. You can't touch anything and nothing can touch you. My boss reads, the third rule of Fight Club is two men per fight neither of us blinks my boss reads one fight at a time i have not slept in three days unless i'm sleeping now my boss shakes the paper under my nose what about it he says is this some little game i'm playing on company time i'm paid for my full attention not to waste time with little war games and i'm not paid to abuse the copy machines what about it he shakes the paper under my nose what do i think he asks What should he do with an employee who spends company time in some little fantasy world? If I was in his shoes, what would I do? What would I do? The hole in my cheek, the blue-black swelling around my eyes, and the swollen red scar of Tyler's kiss on the back of my hand. A copy of a copy of a copy. Speculation. Why does Tyler want ten copies of the Fight Club rules? Hindu cow. What would I do, I say, as I'd be very careful who I talked to about this paper. I say it sounds like some dangerous psychotic killer wrote this, and this buttoned-down schizophrenic could probably go over the edge at any moment in the working day and stalk from office to office with an Armalite AR-180 carbine gas-operated semi-automatic. My boss just looks at me. The guy, I say, is probably at home every night with a little rat tail file, filing across into the tip of every one of his rounds. This way, when he shows up to work one morning and pumps a round into his nagging, ineffectual, petty, whining, butt-sucking, candy-ass boss, that one round will split along the filed grooves and spread open the way a dum-dum bullet flowers inside you to blow a bushel load of your stinking guts out through your spine. Picture your gut chakra opening in a slow-motion explosion of sausage-casing small intestine. My boss takes the paper out from under my nose. Go ahead, I say. Read some more. No, really, I say. It sounds fascinating. The work of a totally diseased mind. And I smile. The little butthole-looking edges of the hole in my cheek are the same blue-black as a dog's gums. The skin stretched tight across the swelling around my eyes feels varnished. My boss just looks at me. Let me help you, I say. I say the fourth rule of Fight Club is one fight at a time. My boss looks at the rules and then looks at me. I say the fifth rule is no shoes, no shirts in the fight. My boss looks at the rules and looks at me. Maybe, I say, this totally diseased fuck would use an uh, eagle Apache carbine because an Apache takes a 30-shot mag and only weighs 9 pounds. The Armalite only takes a 5-pound magazine. With 30 shots, our totally fucked hero could go the length of mahogany row and take out every vice president with a cartridge left over for each director. Tyler's words coming out of my mouth. I used to be such a nice person. I just look at my boss. My boss has blue, blue, pale, cornflower blue eyes. The J&R 68 semi-automatic carbine also takes a 30-shot mag, and it only weighs seven pounds. My boss just looks at me. It's scary, I say. This is probably somebody... He's known for years. Probably the guy knows all about him. Where he lives, where his wife works, his kids go to school. This is exhausting and all of a sudden very, very boring. And why does Tyler need 10 copies of the Fight Club rules? What I don't have to say is I know about the leather interiors that cause birth defects. I know about the counterfeit brake linings that looked good enough to pass the purchasing agent but fail after 2,000 miles. I know about the air conditioning, rheostat that gets so hot it sets fire to the maps in your glove compartment. I know how many people burn alive because of fuel injector flashback. I've seen people's legs cut off at the knee when turbochargers start exploding and send their veins through the firewall and into the passenger compartment. I've been out in the field and seen the burned up cars and seen the reports where cause of failure is recorded as unknown. No, I say the paper's not mine. I take the paper between two fingers and jerk it out of his hand. The edge must slice his thumb because his hand flies to his mouth and he's sucking hard, eyes wide open. I crumble the paper into a ball and toss it into the trash can next to my desk. Maybe, I say, you shouldn't be bringing me every little piece of trash you pick up. (laughs) Everything about his life is artificial. Everything about his life is plastic and disposable even the people. And I think this is something that we've now read about at length since we started this book. And I think a lot of us experience in our own lives or have experienced in our own lives. We live in an artificial world filled with artificial things and artificial people. Plastic rules our lives. It dominates our homes, our travel, our relationships. Everything about our lives is plastic. For example, when I arrived here at this congregation that I now serve. There were plastic plants up on the altar, plastic candles filled with liquid oil. Everything about this church's decorate decoration motif was plastic. And I made the comment, when I arrived, God doesn't do plastic worship. And yet, for a generation of baby boomers who grew up in the heyday of Tupperware, and plastic plants, plastic candles, plastic furniture, everything plastic. They could not comprehend what I meant because as is said so often, that's the way we've always done it. And my counter argument was just because that's the way you always done it does not make it right or good. And what does that say about your piety? What does that say about your belief and your confession of faith? That you don't think it an honor to revere your God with what he has created, such as real flowers and plants, real beeswax candles, what is real and concrete, what is, well, for lack of a better term, natural. And it took me many years and many funerals to change the altar so that we have real plants and real flowers so that we have real beeswax candles. And it may seem like a small thing, but to my point then, to my example, we are so inoculated to what is real that when someone puts something in front of us that is not real, that is made with man's hands, that is a human invention, even in relation to God, we don't think twice. Everything in our homes, everything in our lives is plastic. And therefore, why wouldn't everything in our churches be plastic as well? And of course, what happens is that you end up with a plastic God, a God that is disposable, a God that is made by man's hands. And as a consequence, you have rejected a true God. You've rejected the real God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. And you've replaced the real God, the true God, with that which is not God, that which is plastic and disposable, that which is necessarily designed to become obsolete, which is totally inauthentic. It is not a reminder of life, but rather a life-denying reminder of your, your finitude, your mortality. And so a place that is intended to be a, a place of life and of hope and inspiration instead becomes a reminder of death and decay and rot because, well, plastic is made from petroleum. And petroleum, depending on how you look at it, is made from dinosaur bones. It's made from dead things. So what ends up happening then, and to the point of the book as well, is that in this case, when you reject God, when you replace the true God with a plastic God, or a disposable God, a God that is not concrete and real, well then, what happens to the people? How do we look at people? How do we look at the victims, the innocent victims of our society? How do we look at their suffering? Do we look at innocent victims and demand that their suffering should be curtailed? Do we look at the victims of evil, true evil? And do we say their lives matter and we need to make a change? Because as I've recently been thinking about and chewing on more and more with the, what seems inevitable encroachment of fascism, in this country because it's already set foot and settled into Canada, Great Britain, Ireland, Australia, New Zealand, China, of course, and other places in the world. It begs the question, who exactly are the people who claim that they have our best interest at heart? Who are they really interested in saving? Who are they really interested in in helping? Who really matters to them? Is it really the innocent victims? Is it really their suffering that the cultural elites and the globalists are the most concerned about? Because, in my opinion anyways, from my readings of Friedrich Nietzsche, René Girard, and others, real charity towards those who suffer, the innocent victims that suffer, not those who see themselves as victims who are not, but true innocent victims who suffer evil. To show charity towards them demands that each of us sacrifice for the good of all not just for those who we like or who we love or who those those whose cause we support, but real genuine charity, caritas, demands sacrifice for the good of everyone. And it is hard, it is difficult because it's all about not overcoming others, but overcoming ourselves and looking at ourselves in such a way and asking, what do I need to do to better myself, to escape this plastic society and these plastic relationships? What do I need to change about myself? What do I need to sacrifice to walk away from what is not true and what is not real and what is not authentic? Because what it leads to then ultimately is a rejection of God. Because once we reject our own humanity, we're going to reject the one who created humanity. And once we reject our own humanity, we don't see ourselves connected to the rest of the world. We don't see ourselves as creatures or a part of creation who have a creator. Instead, we see ourselves as accidents. And then we end up with a kind of pseudo-humanness. That's the way we see each other, is that we're not fully human beings. We're like human beings, but we're not fully human. And the reason that we're not fully human is because we've denied our own humanity by denying those who suffer the most amongst us, those who are the innocent victims of evil. By refusing to look at ourselves and confront those things about ourselves that contribute to Evil, contribute to injustice, contribute to victimhood, real victimhood, by refusing to confront ourselves and pointing the finger at other people and demanding that they change to fix the system, we're actually dehumanizing each other because we're refusing to acknowledge that to truly fix the world, to truly help the world for the better and help other people for the better, we have to overcome ourselves first and foremost. We have to address our own flaws and weaknesses and vulnerabilities first and stop demanding that other people change for us. And so then when it comes to the matter, you know, the whole matter of God, it comes to the matter of Christianity, for example. What Christianity has done the last two or 300 years is essentially said, no one should be sacrificed. Even though the entire premise of the Christian faith is the sacrifice of God, the self-sacrifice of God. And then essentially the command to go into the world and sacrifice ourselves, our own needs and wants, for the sake of the innocent victim, those who truly are suffering from evil. So the very place that you should be able to go and hear a message of the sacrifice of God, the self-sacrifice of God for the evils of the world, and then the sacrifice of those who follow that God for the evils of the world in order to better the world, the one place that you should expect to go and hear that message, instead what's established is that no one should be sacrificed. Because God sacrificed himself, that's good enough. We don't have to sacrifice for each other. And it creates this fundamental this division between reality and what's not real. Because what ends up happening then is we don't, we don't applaud and praise the greatness of God's self-sacrificial act for our world. Therefore, we don't praise others for their self-sacrificial act for the world. And therefore, we have no concern for the actual victims of evil, of injustice. And what ends up happening is that we destroy ourselves by destroying others. So if you want to know why National Socialism succeeded in being so terribly destructive, if you want to understand how Stalinism and Mao and Pol Pot and others, and then in the present tense, those leaders who are marching us into full-blown fascism, how are they able to get away with it? It's because we as a society do not believe in self-sacrifice, individual personal sacrifice for the sake of the other who is a victim of true moral evil and wickedness and violence and injustice. Instead, other people are to blame. Other people are responsible. Other people must accept the consequences of our lack of sacrifice, personal sacrifice. See, what ends up happening is that We conquer each other through the use of this fundamental ideology that I can offer you a respite from your pain and your suffering if you just listen to me, if you just follow me, if you just worship me. Because as we've talked about with the midweek debriefs and the Nietzsche readings, the common herd, the slave morality of the common herd is give me pleasure, make me comfortable, and then remove responsibility from me for my choices, and I will follow you wherever you want me to go. That is the anti-self-sacrificial ethic. Whereas the ubermensch looks at him or herself and says, what must I do to change myself so that I can become more intelligent? Increase my creativity. Create something for the world that serves the world that wasn't there before. How can I better the world with my abilities and my gifts? How can I leverage those things for the betterment of all people, especially those who are the victims of evil and injustice, the widow, the orphan, and so on. So what ends up happening then is we bury this concern for victims under millions and millions and millions of corpses. That's national socialism. That's what the Chinese Communist Party does to those workers in the Nike factories and the Gap factories, the Banana Republic, um, uh, Apple, and so on is that we're not concerned about the real victims, not the people that are enslaved in the factories, not the children who are forced to make shoes for $8 a day or in a week or $7 a week. We don't care about the real victims of racial injustice in this country. Why? Because in order to do that, we would have to clear away the millions upon millions of corpses that are piled up in front of us that are the consequence of our refusal to take responsibility for our part in their death. Every time I'm on my phone, right now, I'm recording this podcast on my MacBook. Everything that I do with all of my Apple products every day, I participate in the subjugation and the, impre- the oppression and the enslavement of Uyghur Muslims and Christians in China. I know that. I'm guilty of it. I'm a part of a system of oppression and genocide. Well, what should I do? Get rid of my Apple products and only buy Android? Well, guess what? They're made in China and India, too. Those factories are filled with slave workers, too. There's no way of escaping it. We have arrived at a point in the capitalist organization of the world, in society, where it is impossible for any of us as individuals to escape a system of oppression and enslavement and genocide. We are all culpable. But because we are all culpable, we just shrug our shoulders and say, well, what are you going to do? No matter what you do, you're a part of the system versus what must I do as an individual to change myself, to change my worldview, to change my ethical and moral system? What must I do to alleviate the suffering of the victim? If we all did that individually, we would actually be capable of alleviating the suffering of the innocent victims, but it's always somebody else's problem. Or we fall into relativism where we say, well, what, what can I do? And we just shrug our shoulders and move on. That's why we're marching towards fascism in the United States. That's why Canada is essentially, you know, pretty much there. Great Britain and Ireland are there. Australia and New Zealand are there. Because we've stripped away everything that makes us human, everything that is concrete and real, everything that is of God. And so we no longer believe actually in the innocence of victims or that their suffering should be remedied, or that their lives actually matter. In the end, those who are killed by police, black, white, brown, Asian, it doesn't matter, they become propaganda pieces. They become rhetoric in the public square used for political purposes. They're not even human. George Floyd ceased to be a human being four days after he was He was killed or died. I said this on the podcast last summer. He ceased to be a human being within hours, days of his death. Because the mainstream media and politicians and activists, they seized upon him. And they made him into somebody he's not. A saint or a demon. When in reality he was just a man. And I didn't know him personally. I don't know much about him except for what I read. Some say he was a Christian. Others say he was a criminal. Some say he was both. But at this point, a year removed, almost a year removed from his death, he's not human anymore. He's just a symbol. He's a political football. He's a piece of rhetoric. But he was never truly a victim. He was never allowed to be a victim. He was never allowed to have anyone step up and say, wait a minute. We need to fix this. We need to discover the root of his death and how it led to this point where this police officer is kneeling on his back or his neck. Instead, he's been used, like so many others have been used, to push us further and further towards social division so that we are marching toward fascism in this country. The United States, within the next five to six years, will be a full-blown fascist authoritarian dictatorship. And then we'll just plug and play presidents, just like they plug and play prime ministers in Great Britain and Canada. It might be called one thing, but we all know what it is, in fact, fascism. We have a dictator. Because, well, a constitutional republic and those who are legally and honestly elected to office don't have to put a fence around their White House and then surround it with soldiers while demanding that we give away our guns yeah, that's fascism. Just study history. (laughs) So what ends up happening, of course, is that because we reject personal sacrifice, it leads us inevitably to sacrificing other people. This is the way towards fascism. This is what essentially is happening within the context of the book, socially speaking, is that the narrator is trapped in a system of oppression. He is participating in this system. This is why he suffers from insomnia, because there is nothing satisfying about his life. Nothing about his life that he can look at and call good. Nothing that he is doing that is producing fruit that he can step back and say, you know what? This is improving humanity. In fact, as we just read, it's the opposite. What he does promotes death. He is a part of a death cult. And he knows this, which is why the only thing that gives his life any meaning is fight club. The only thing that gives his life any meaning is his relationship, his physical relationship with other men in the basement of the bar, because that's the only intimate contact outside of his support groups where he has to lie and pretend he's somebody he's not to just feel basic human contact and emotion. And so by rejecting personal sacrifice society-wide, we end up sacrificing others, including ourselves, So within the context of the narrator's job, he does his job day after day after day after day, and someday he'll retire, and then he'll be replaced and forgotten. And he'll move somewhere, retire somewhere, do something, and then die. And a few people will attend his funeral, but not many. And he will be forgotten because his life was meaningless. What he contributed to the world meant nothing. He improved nothing, bettered nothing, did nothing good for society. And therefore his life is devoid of meaning. He is devoid of meaning. He is less than human now. He is a copy of a copy of a copy. And until we recognize this and take steps that are necessary to break free of that system, break free of those institutions that dehumanize us and degrade us and degenerate us, until we do that, Our churches will continue to preach a plastic God, a disposable God. It will preach a message of death because it's really a death cult. It's a life-denying church, a life-denying religion. It will dehumanize us. It will preach fear and insecurity and anxiety. It will enslave us to guilt and shame in order to keep us coming, in order to keep butts in the seats, in order to keep money coming into the offering plates. Just like at our job, just like in our social clubs, just like everything we do. Or we can recognize that this is all a grift. This is all a scam. We're participating in a death cult. And then we can seek to break free of it. One of the things that Chuck's trying to get out in this book is that as individuals, we cling to our perception of reality over and against what is real, what is staring us right in the face, what is hitting us right in the face. And what we've now seen the past year is that those of us who suspected all along or said all along that the entire population suffers from this disease of perception has been true, is true. The entire population has and will continue to participate in a collective lie, even marching into fascism, even accepting fascism as the new normal, because what is happening before their eyes is outside the boundaries of their reality that they've determined, that they've agreed upon. And even when they're being loaded onto cattle cars, even when they're being rounded up by police and sent to re-education camps or what do they call them? Immunization camps, whatever you want to call it. They still won't believe what's happening to them is real because it defies the boundaries. It, It blows away the boundaries of their perception of what reality must be. And so even when something is happening right in front of us and we look at it and say to ourselves, this is happening right in front of me, this crime is happening in front of me, this this girl is trying to stab another girl to death with a knife, even when we see it happening, we say, well, that's not possible. That can't be happening. Someone edit that video. Why? Because it defies our perception of reality. But for many people, that's every day. That's simply the reality of life where they live at. As I've said before, where I grew up at, getting in fights was normal. Fights behind the hockey arena after school, fights at parties, fights in the alley behind the pool hall on weekends. Fighting was just a part of life. It's normal, where I grew up at. But for other people, they don't understand that. They never have been in a fight in their entire life. And it defies their perception of reality then. That something like that could actually happen, that could be allowed to happen, where there's teenagers. But as I uh, read in the poem the other day, The Wanderer, those who are eager for glory often bind something bloody close to their own chest. What are we after? We're after comfort. We're after safety. We want to enjoy all the pleasures and, and joys of life that our heart craves. And it doesn't matter if it's God. It doesn't matter if it's our spouse or our partner. It doesn't matter if it's coworkers or teammates. It doesn't matter. We will bend reality to our perception of reality. And those who break loose from that are vilified, ostracized, alienated because they are a mirror. And I've talked about this before, held up to us that show us your life is a lie, your life is plastic. You are contributing to the dehumanization of yourself and others. You are part of a system, of an institution, of oppression. You are participating in the victimization and enslavement of yourself and other people. But all you have to do to break free of this is recognize that you're free. You are free to walk away. You're free to acknowledge that you are weak and intellectually and physically lazy, that you are a beta male, that you are a female that can't protect herself. You can recognize that the great minds, so to speak, the social influencers of our generation appeal to the lowest common denominator. That they are mouthpieces for a ruling elite that benefit, that profit from our continued enslavement, from us continuing to embrace a slave morality, which is get along to go along, just do what we tell you. We know what's best. We've assigned divine power to the state and cultural influencers. Even though they are not gods. And therefore, we follow them as if they are God. We listen to them as if their word is from God. We worship them as gods. But all of this points to is that we are weak and we are lazy and we are cowardly and timid and afraid of acknowledging our perception of reality is not reality, it's not observable reality. And in order to break free of this, all we have to acknowledge and admit to ourselves is I'm participating in a lie. I see, I observe what's right in front of me to be the truth. And I agree or disagree with that truth. And therefore, I'm going to walk away or I'm going to double down on this. But I can tell you from experience, when you do that, family, friends, colleagues, peers, they're going to turn their backs on you. They're going to vilify you. They're going to demonize you. They're going to use you as a cautionary tale to others of what happens when somebody, you know, goes crazy, goes off the reservation. They're out there in left field doing their own thing. Like I'm Kurtz or something at at the end of the river in Apocalypse Now. Why? Because I broke the rules. Because I don't embrace the same morality as the rest of the slaves that I grew up with that I'm surrounded by in the present tense. Why? Because I'd rather be free and lost then a slave marching over the cliff with the rest of the herd. So back to the book. Sunday night I go to remaining men together in the basement of Trinity Episcopal is almost empty. Just Big Bob and I come dragging in with every muscle bruised inside and out. But my heart's still racing, and my thoughts are a tornado in my head. This is insomnia. All night your thoughts are on the air. All night long you're thinking, Am I asleep? Have I slept? Insult to injury. Big Bob's arms come out of his t-shirt sleeves quilted with muscle and so hard they shine. Big Bob smiles. He's so happy to see me. He thought I was dead. Yeah I say me too. Well Big Bob says I've got good news. Where is everybody? That's the good news Big Bob says. The group disbanded. I only come down here to tell any guys who might show up. I collapse with my eyes closed on one of the plaid thrift store couches. The good news, Big Bob says, is there's a new group. But the first rule about this new group is you aren't supposed to talk about it. Oh? Big Bob says, and the second rule is you're not supposed to talk about it. Oh, shit. I open my eyes. Fuck. The group's called Fight Club, Big Bob says, and it meets every Friday night in a closed garage across town. On Thursday nights, there's another fight club that meets at a garage closer by. I don't know either of these places. (laughs) The first rule about Fight Club, Big Bob says, is you don't talk about Fight Club. Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday night, Tyler is a movie projectionist. I saw his pay stub last week. The second rule about Fight Club, Big Bob says, is you don't talk about Fight Club. Saturday night, Tyler goes to Fight Club with me. Only two men per fight. Sunday morning, we come home beat up and sleep all afternoon. Only one fight at a time, Big Bob says. Sunday and Monday night, Tyler's waiting tables. You fight without shirts or shoes. Tuesday night, Tyler's at home making soap, wrapping it in tissue paper, shipping it out. The Paper Street Soap Company. The fights, Big Bob says, go on as long as they have to. Those are the rules invented by the guy who invented Fight Club. Big Bob asks, do you know him? I've never seen him myself, Big Bob says, but the guy's name is Tyler Durden. The Paper Street Soap Company do I know him? I don't know. I say, maybe. And I think this is the interesting twist, at least for me, it's the interesting twist in this story then, and the real kind of dark humor at the heart of Fight Club is that Fight Club has now become a franchise. There are two Fight Clubs that the narrator isn't aware of that are happening. And it's been franchised. The very thing that the narrator is seeking to escape, the franchising of his life, the franchising of society, the Starbucks, Ikea, Nike branded society that he lives in that has made him numb and made him an insomniac and given him a sense of no meaning or purpose. The very thing he sought to escape through Fight Club has now itself become a part of society. And this is important for all of us to remember. When I was in high school, for example, And I would go to the mall in Duluth, Minnesota, because I lived in Ely, two hours from anything that was exciting. And so we would get in the car Friday night or Saturday morning and make the two hour trek to Duluth. And we'd go to the mall and you'd go to Hot Topic or Spencer's Gifts. And of course, in every one of those stores, there's t-shirts and there's t-shirts with your favorite bands on them, t-shirts with funny sayings on them whatever cartoon character or commercial catchphrase is popular at the time. But the one that I always thought was absurdly funny, even when I was 15, 16 years old, was the Anarchy t-shirts. That I would go to a Spencer's Gift and buy an Anarchy t-shirt at a mall is about the least punk rock, least anarchistic thing that I think you could possibly do and really goes to the point of our society is that any subgenre any subculture within our society is immediately commodified by the corporate system this happened also when i was in college when grunge hit real hard my sophomore year of college grunge hit and within a year of grunge really hitting hard all of a sudden grunge was everywhere everywhere you went the gap banana republic wherever you went grunge So, plaid t shirts were 100 bucks. Cut off jeans, 150 bucks. Beat up combat boots, 200 bucks. Or you could just go to Ragstock and buy the whole ensemble for 25 bucks. And all of a sudden, now the way that we dressed, my whole group of friends dressed because we were poor and my friend worked at Ragstock. So, we just shopped at Ragstock because it was cheap. Now, all of a sudden, everybody was dressing like us. (laughs) the the difference being is that we were spending one to two hundred dollars less for our ensemble than they were (laughs) but again they just commodified a subculture and this happens over and over again that's the way of american culture if you think of tai chi for example or just martial arts in general mixed martial arts mma is the natural outcome the natural consequence of American culture getting hold of martial arts, Eastern martial arts in particular. What did we do? We took all of them and we smashed them together. It's like going to a kickboxing aerobics class or a hot yoga class. We have taken something that was originally spiritual, something that was originally intended for war, for hand-to-hand combat, where it was life or death, and we've turned it into something that suburban housewives do on weekends for one or two hours. That's America. America. That's what we do. We are the convenience store of the world. And therefore, what has become a fight club? It has been added to the strip mall of the world. It has become one more shop. Like Spencer's Gifts. Like Orange Julius, Cinnabon, The Gap. I'm really beating up on The Gap today. <laughs> it is inevitable in our culture that anything will eventually become commodified and turned into a fad, turned into something that can make money for these multinational corporations. It's inevitable. And in a way, the more you try and avoid it happening, the more popular you will become. It's kind of like a friend of mine in seminary once said that my piety is my anti-piety. That I'm so sickened by people's false piety that I simply adopted whatever their piety was not and to a certain extent he is correct because i am a contrarian by nature i do not trust crowds of people running in one direction as george carlin said if i see a group of people running in one direction i'm going the other direction because the only thing that is you know stupider than one person is a whole bunch of stupid people in a group and so what happens of course is that we see something something is flashed in front of us something shiny something pretty something provocative And we're told this is the thing that you have to have. This is the new thing. This is the next big thing. If you want to be a part of the cultural conversation, you got to watch Game of Thrones. You got to watch Mad Men. You got to watch Breaking Bad. You got to be able to talk about it at work. You got to be able to talk about it on church on Sunday. You got to be a part of the conversation. We even have a saying, right? FOMO, fear of missing out. That is in and of itself a key to our jail cell. It's what locks us in, fear of missing out. Missing out on what? What's not real? What isn't offering us any substantive dialogue? Not teaching us to think critically for ourselves? Not teaching us any useful skills to help improve our world? I also think at this point in the book, what we also see then is that there is this contradiction, this paradox that the narrator is seen as being a degenerate by those around him. And yet what he sees is that the entire world is rife with degeneracy. The people around him are degenerates because they have been dehumanized and reduced to machines, not even machines, but like cogs in the machine itself. They're just parts. They don't think they're drones. And as a consequence, he is expected to not think to do his job, to show up every day and do the same thing. And even though he recognizes that his boss wears the same colored tie, the same tie every Tuesday, he is supposed to pretend that he doesn't notice. He's not supposed to pretend that hours and hours of the day are squandered, doing not work, because the work is tedious and boring. It is soul-killing work. It is not rewarding. But we're all expected to go along with this and play the game. We're all expected to participate in the death cult. We're all expected to take our orders and march in rank and file with the rest of the herd. But if we step outside of that, like at the beginning of the movie, Penguins, (laughs) which by the way, is an awesome movie. I love Penguins of Madagascar. I just, I don't know why. It just, it tickles my my funny bone when I watch it. But the beginning of Penguins, the three step out of line and the rest of the Penguins keep marching. And their question is like, where are we marching to and why are we marching? It's like, we're Penguins. We don't ask questions. We just march. And that's us. That's the weirdos in society, wherever we find ourselves. We are the ones who step out of line and ask, where in the hell are we going? Why are we marching this direction? Where are we supposed to stop? Who's leading this? Who's in charge? Who decided we're, we're marching in this direction? And no one answers. Or they say, get back in line. And so we just step out of line enough that eventually we just decide, you know what? I'm not going that way. I see this all the time in Muay Thai and Jiu-Jitsu, especially here at my gym, especially with the moms that come and they start Muay Thai and you can see the fear in their eyes, the insecurity, the anxiety, their need to constantly apologize for making mistakes and screwing up. But then slowly but surely, it starts to excite them and they start to get comfortable being uncomfortable. And that challenge that there's something difficult in front of them and they need to meet this challenge. And every time they do and they get a little bit better and a little bit better, a little bit more encouragement, a little bit more motivated, all of a sudden now it starts to take over. It starts to take over their imagination. And now they're thinking about it when they're not here. And on the days that we don't have class, they're thinking to themselves, you know what, we should have class. So this is what has happened, funny enough. I've got some moms That text with each other on days when we don't have class, and they get together in the basement of my church when I'm not here, and they spar. They have essentially their own fight club (laughs) in the basement of my church, and I think that's awesome because there's just not enough hours in the days for them to do muay thai to punch and to kick and to knee and to clinch and to dump each other on their heads. And so I've got these housewives, these moms in my congregation now, who during church on Sunday mornings are thinking to themselves, okay, I only got four more hours till Muay Thai class. I only got five more hours till Muay Thai class. I wonder if I should call so-and-so and have them come by the church tomorrow morning and spar while the kids are at school. This is what happens when you take a person who is bored, who has had all of their senses dulled and turned down to four, who does not understand that. They don't really have a goal anymore. They don't really have any meaning to their lives other than be mom, be this wife, keep the house in this condition, go to work and do this job, rinse, repeat day after day after day until you die. And you offer them this challenge. You offer them something that's physically challenging, mentally and emotionally challenging. And then they see the pounds slip away and their confidence begins to build. And they're excited about something again for the first time in years. And it's theirs. They own it. It's something that they can take home and say, I accomplished this. And it sets their imagination on fire all of a sudden because now they're thinking to themselves, well, if I can do this, what else can I do? What else can I accomplish? Because this scared the hell out of me. And now it's just normal. So I wonder, what else can I do? What other goals can I set for myself? What other things that scare me can I confront now and meet? And so I said to one mom as she was going home after class one night, you know you're a martial artist now. And she kind of gave me the, whatever, okay, fine. You know, you're just being nice to me. I'm like, no, seriously, you are a martial arts student. You participate in a martial art, Muay Thai. One of the most violent, striking martial arts that there is, if not the most violent, striking martial art that there is. You do this. Every week, three, four times a week, you meet in secret with other moms to beat the crap out of each other every week. You're a martial artist. And to her, that was an amazing statement that now she is something. She is someone that she looked at from afar and said to herself, well, that's, that's something that I could never, ever be. I could never be like that person. And yet now here she is that's exactly who she is. That's exactly who they are. And knowing that, having that there now, all of a sudden, elevates her self-esteem, elevates her perspective, her view of herself, elevates her expectations for herself and others now. Because now she wants and others want all the people that they know to participate in Muay Thai and Jiu-Jitsu. They need to come and they need to discover this for themselves because it will change their life. And it's not for everybody, of course, but they don't know that in their excitement. But they're so excited, they're like evangelists. They proselytize for the gospel of Muay Thai and Jiu-Jitsu because it changed their life for the better. And they just can't comprehend why anybody wouldn't want to do this. And I concur, I agree, but it's not for everybody. It's for the 1% of the 1% who are either willing to step up and meet the challenge or who are so desperate for meaning, so desperate to have a goal, so desperate to not sit awake at night with insomnia and wonder, am I asleep or am I awake? Is my life real or is this a simulation? Those people who step through that door and make that choice, make that decision to take responsibility for their life, they're the ones who stay. They're the ones who are excited by Muay Thai and Jiu-Jitsu. They're the ones who grow and better themselves. And as a consequence, also suffer alienation, marginalization. They're ostracized from their social circles. Family and friends say, I don't, I don't recognize you anymore. I don't know who you are anymore. You've changed so much. And they also, of course, mean change for the worse, not the better. But this is what happens. When you separate yourself out from the herd, when you separate yourself out from these institutions and these systems of oppression and dehumanization, that are godless death cults. You're going to have to go and find people like you. You're going to have to actively search them out because there's so few of us anymore. And just moving to Texas ain't going to help. I'm sorry to tell you that. Texas is not this like post-capitalist utopia where all the, the badasses hang out and then the rest of the world's going to hell. There are people in your local community. There's probably people in your neighborhood who are desperate for what I just talked about. Who are living the life of the narrator in this book who need their own fight club whatever that means and maybe you're the one who introduces them to fight club maybe you're big bob <laughs> maybe you're the one but if you don't step out and walk across the street and say hey i'd like to tell you about uh muay thai i'd like to tell you about this thing called jujitsu i think it'll change your life you can come with me it's free the first class is free and the, the worst that can happen is that they come and decide, you know what, this isn't for me. That's the worst that can happen. But of course, what we all hope for is that they come and their life has changed for the better and they keep coming back. Because for me, Muay Thai, Jiu-Jitsu, fighting and sparring, that's reality. That That violent art is what opens us up to concrete reality. Getting punched in the face, getting kicked in the ribs, it wakes you up. It jars you awake from sleep. It opens your mind because it humbles you. It crushes your ego that insists, no, my perception of reality must be what is real. Instead, it crushes that and says, no, this is reality. This five foot, five inch woman just kicked you in the ribs and almost knocked the wind out of you. That's reality. And so if you can take anything from the book, if you can take anything from my reading of the book and and this monologue, I I hope it's that. That you don't have to simply sit down in your cubicle and accept your fate just because other people tell you this is is it, this is life. Because it's not, it's anti-life. Like I said, it's participation in a death cult. If you hate your job, find another job. Because if you're miserable now, you're going to be more miserable in five years. And the stress and anxiety of finding a new job is still going to be more rewarding when you get that job or make that job for yourself than if you stayed in this soul-killing, soul-crushing, dehumanizing job that you're in now. If your relationships leave you numb and they don't challenge you, they don't better you, you're not growing from them. If you're filled with lo- self-loathing and resentment. If you don't see a future for yourself that excites you, then maybe you ought to check out of those relationships. Maybe those people aren't your friends. I was talking with my friend Brittany about this the other night. And for the sake of this example, I have to point out that she is African-American because it matters. And We're talking and I was talking to her about the Derek Chauvin verdict because I wanted her take on it. She's my friend and she also has a different experience obviously than I do. And she would note it to me though, because what I said to her was, I've really been down this week. It's really been a struggle for me this week because I can almost feel the hate and the anxiety and the anger that's in the air. It's almost palpable and it's really heavy on me because I so desperately want people to be kinder to each other and more loving and forgiving towards each other and show each other mercy and charity and to see the vitriol and the angry rhetoric and the instigation of violence, not even towards the people that we should be angry at, but towards each other. It just it weighs me down and it it hurts. It just hurts. It's heartbreaking to me. Because I don't understand why we would fall into this trap that constantly is laid for us that we judge each other based on the color of our skins. As if that matters as if the content of our character isn't the primary thing by which we should judge each other. So I'm talking to Brittany and I'm asking her like, you know, do you feel that? Do you feel how palpable that is? And she said for her, it's the fact that so many people that she thought were her friends don't want to talk about it with her because she's black. Even other black people don't want to talk about this with her because she's black. And how frustrating that is for her to think I thought these people were my friends, but they don't trust me enough. They don't love me enough to ask my opinion. And I said, well, I understand in a certain sense, they don't want to make you out to be my black friend, Brittany, or, well, you're a black person, you know, let's get your perspective. But at the same time, she can't change who she is. She can't change her life experience. And therefore as her friend and as someone who loves and respects her and trusts her opinion, I'm asking her opinion not just as a black person or a black woman, but as my friend who has a different experience in life than I do and can teach me something from her side of the street that I've never experienced before in my life. And so we had a great conversation. It was brief, but it was great because for her, it showed that I respected her enough to ask her opinion and I loved her enough to listen, but it was also helpful for me to know that somebody else felt the same heartbreak that's heavy that same heavy weight on their heart that i did and if we could just get over ourselves and get over our prejudices and our biases and accept the fact that yes we're all different we have different colored skin we're different genders there's only two genders by the way but we're different male and female we have different experiences in life depending on where we grew up at and the kind of family that we came from everything about us that makes us different from others doesn't have to be a negative it shouldn't be a negative it should be complimentary. And that, that aspect, that part of our personality that's unique to us, that complements others, is the thing that is suppressed by our culture. It's the thing that is essentially explained to us or, or taught to us as being a negative, that we all have to be the same. We all have to be equal. Well, no, we're not equal. We're not all the same. And that's good. Because what I'm strong in, you might be weak in, and so I can help you. But what your strengths are, maybe where I'm weakest. And so I need you to help me. And like I've said before, I don't know where things went off the rails because when I was little, Sesame Street taught me this. You've got paintbrushes. I've got paper. She's got paints. None of us can actually make art by ourselves because we're missing the other supplies. But if we all get together and share, now we have all got a paintbrush and paints and paper, and we all get to make art together. That was drilled into my head day after day after day by Sesame Street and Mr. Rogers and the electric company growing up. And somehow that was lost. Somewhere in the 90s, actually. There was a law that was passed that changed that. And so my kids, unless I seek that out on YouTube, they don't don't get to watch that day after day. I have to be that person for them and teach them that day after day after day to cooperate, to share, to be kind towards each other, To recognize those who are true victims and to stand up for them, fight for them, be activistic for them, walk with them. Because there's going to be a time when all of us are weak and vulnerable. There's going to be a time when all of us fall and need someone to help us back up. There's going to be a time when we need somebody to fight for us. And so do we surround ourselves with people who are going to do that for us? Or when times get tough, like right now, do people flee? because that is not a good time to find out that your friends are not your friends. So whether it's, you know, the constant drumbeat of racism and systemic racism that politicians and big tech and multinational corporations love to trot out every time there's a crisis that they don't want us to focus on, whether it's all the COVID bullshit and all the propaganda about vaccines that are being pushed on us daily, our families are being divided over these things. Our communities are being destroyed over these things. All because we won't take personal responsibility for our choices. All because we don't recognize that these institutions profit from our enslavement, from our being at war with each other. And so we don't attack the mayors and the governors and these federal politicians. We don't hold them accountable. We don't attack their homes. We don't dox them. Instead, we attack each other. We dox each other. We burn down our businesses and our communities that are owned and run by our neighbors. It just is so disheartening to me. So heartbreaking that we never learn. Because I've been seeing this now since I was a kid in the 70s. So I've seen it for 40 years. And we never learn. That's what breaks my heart. Is it's so obvious. Because it's the same playbook used over and over and over again. And either we don't want to see because, again, it defies our perception of reality, or the truth of the matter is that in our hearts, we want to hurt other people. We want other people to carry away our pain and our suffering because we don't have a God who does it for us, because we have no faith in a higher power, because we have no goals. And we don't see ourselves and others as being fully human creatures of God, people worthy of love and respect and kindness and mercy. We're incapable of showing charity to each other because we don't even know what is good anymore. And so as a consequence, we call good evil and evil good. We call injustice justice. We call the true racists activists. We call all the race baiting politicians, social justice warriors. We actually teach our kids to look up to these professional athletes and celebrity mouthpieces that shill for multinational corporations that are guilty of genocide, or at least participating in genocide. Everything's upside down and backwards. So if we don't step out of line, if we don't stop marching in rank and file with the herd, well, then nothing good is ever going to come. Nothing good will ever happen. The world will not get better if we don't make a choice and stand up and fight. And that's really what the book is all about in the end, is making the choice to stand up and fight. Because if we don't, who will? So fight. Stand up and fight. Like I said, it's a lot more exciting and a lot more motivating than laying down and being lazy and weak and cowardly and just accepting our fate, being fed into the machine chewed up and spit out by this monster. So anyways, that's all I got today. I'm feeling a little bit better than I was last week. Thanks for those who checked in and asked if I was doing all right. I appreciate that. Appreciate the concern. I appreciate the mercy and the charity you showed me. But I'm coming out of it now. I think I figured it out. Just have to spar more. (laughs) Get hit a few more times. Snaps me out of my uh, malaise. So, yeah. I I, uh, I really do appreciate you being there. I appreciate everyone who listens. I, I appreciate the fact that some of you tell me that you benefit from these, these monologues, these readings. Um, otherwise, that's all I got for this week. So I will talk to you again next Wednesday for the Midweek Debrief. All right, everyone. Love you, weirdos. Peace.